0: Hello, you're listening to the Fictoplasm podcast and it has been nearly five months since the last episode. There are very good reasons for that. Basically, um, family crisis and then I got a bit burnt out so I took a step back. Well, whatever, it's just a hobby. But anyway, um, this will be the second episode of the series of fictional worlds existing in fictional primary worlds. So previously we covered The Magicians by Lev Grossman and this episode I'm going to talk about the Land of Laughs by Jonathan Carroll, which was one of the, I think it was number nine in the Fantasy Masterworks reprints. I got really got into around two thousand, and it absolutely blew me away because I hadn't read that kind of fantasy novel before, uh, and so I guess my obsession with liminality, the liminal, etc., partly comes from this. Um, it is, uh, it's not very long, uh, and I do recommend it. I am going to go through the whole plot, though, so there will be some spoilers. Um, Well, pretty heavy spoilers, in fact. But anyway, Jonathan Carroll's Land of Loss is described as low fantasy uh, by its sparse Wikipedia page. And i followed the link to the wiki page on low fantasy, which describes it as intrusion fantasy, having the characteristic of fantasy elements emerging into a primary world, Um, and contrast this with the definition of high fantasy, which in the same page defines it as happening in a wholly invented secondary world. Now, I think that a lot of role players certainly will take exception to this definition. We have quite a different idea about what low and high fantasy is, particularly in this era where we're looking at more gritty, realistic, grimdark um, adventure. We would typically call the Fafard and Grey Mouser uh, Fritz Lieber stories low fantasy. Uh, grim and gritty and dark, we call Thief the Dark Project is probably low fantasy, although it's also clock punk. And we'd call Lord of the Rings high fantasy uh, because it has mythic themes. Um, so I mean, And that's really where our role-playing definitions will tend to come. We'll say that uh, a low fantasy world is uh, a realistic fantasy and a high fantasy world is mythic fantasy, which is also quite reductive. Still, it's called low fantasy, and I think it does make sense. It is, for one thing, it's um, it's not quite magical realism where magic is never explicit. Well, obviously, this, this does have explicit, fantastic elements in it, which I'll get to in a moment. I'm going to talk about uh, the synopsis now. Thomas Abbey is the son of the famous deceased actor Stephen Abbey, and he's a disaffected 30-year-old English teacher in a prep school. And from the outset of the book, we learn two related facts, that he's really unlucky with love and... He's also something of a freak, well, a nerd uh, for Marshall France, as, as he, uh, he collects, um, as well as collecting and adorning his flat with um, masks, which successfully ward off prospective romantic partners, he's obsessed with Marshall France, the dead author of The Green Dog's Sorrow and Peach Shadows and the titular Land of Loves. A chance encounter with a copy of Pete Shadows in a bookstore puts him in the path of Saxony Gardner, another France enthusiast, and similarly a freakish collector, this time of marionettes. It's sort of like a double dose of Quentin Coldwater. Thomas and Saxony aren't just fans, their affection for France is rooted in childhood trauma, and their canonical knowledge is exceptional. Uh, Saxony introduces Thomas to The Night Races into Anna, which is France's only adult novel, unfinished and unpublished. Thomas, in turn, blurts out that he's thinking of a biography of Marshall France, and after some trepidation, they join forces. Tracking down his editor and also the funeral parlor in New York City where he once worked, and getting conflicting information about his past in the process, their search inevitably leads them to Galen, Missouri and his own living relative, his daughter Anna now part two starts with a road trip from Connecticut to Missouri let's just think about what's happened in part one Thomas and Saxony have formed a relationship and we've learned a fair bit about their backstory but the real plot hook has been the talk about the biography and the mysterious night rushes into Anna the rest of it is all background to Thomas and Saxony and their relationship which makes for a great reading, but not a good start for a game. Let's think about where we're going. Galen is a tiny community in the middle of nowhere, which is a good environment for a game or a book plot. If I were setting a game in this kind of setting, I'd probably start it with the approach to Galen, to the Galen Town Limits. And I kind of think I kind of think that's an essential point for a lot of the books that we covered, that the start of a role-playing game could be could come halfway through a, uh, a plot as written in a book. Anyway, on with the synopsis. Part two begins with the road trip to Galen, where the characters encounter uh, the stereotypical small-town wariness of the big city. But only really for a moment as so the town actually opens up to Thomas and Saxony, and they become enchanted with sleepy town America, basically. They need to convince Anna France to let them write the biography of her father, She's not the monstrous character painted by Francis, New York editor who basically warned them off doing this. Uh, And Thomas quickly becomes infatuated with her her as she introduces them to the town that formed the foundation of uh, France's books. There's the expected quirky assembly of characters, many of whom were the inspiration for Francis characters. And this is the point where the magic begins to seep in. Thomas hallucinates Krang, the Mad Kite in the place of Sharon Lee during a dinner party. We also learn that Sleepy Town Galen has suffered a series of tragedies in the in the last few months the most recent having been just witnessed by Thomas early in the morning as a boy is run over by Joe Johnson who according to the onlookers shouldn't have been involved in the accident here we have the first hint that events are preordained but Nothing truly odd has happened until the third act. By this time Thomas has turned in the first chapter for Anna France's approval and they've also become lovers while Saxony is laid up in hospital with a broken leg. Mostly we have the ingredients of a small town soap opera. I wonder if this book was any influence on David Lynch for Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks and there's more of a whiff of shared DNA there. Note that this book was published in 1980 so the timeline is there. It could have been. I should mention the dogs now. Thomas and Saxony's landlady, Goosey, has a bull terrier called Nails, and Anna France has another named Petals. I think there might be a third one somewhere, I can't remember. The next weird thing that happens is that uh, Nails, the bull terrier, speaks to Thomas. It's a sudden revelation that comes just as Thomas has settled into a routine of writing, sneaking off to be with Anna, implicating Saxony, who's just returned home from hospital, settling the reader into a nice domestic love triangle. Nails is described as speaking in a high, squeaky voice. And Thomas realises that Nails can speak first when he hears him talking in his sleep, saying, It breathes through the fur. It breathes through the fur. We know that there was going to be something up with the dogs, right? There's a bulldog on the cover which casts a human shadow. Now, that's a spoiler. I guess the painting was done for this edition. The artist is Joe del Tufo, apparently. It turns out out all the bull terriers in Galen were, once people, turned into animals by Marshal France himself, who disapproved of their behaviour. France's power as a writer extended to writing the very destinies of the characters in Galen into a series of volumes called the Galen First Series. He turned Gert and Wilmer Inkler into dogs for abusing their children, And his godlike power extended to rewriting much of the town to the extent that only Anna, Richard Lee, Thomas and Saxony are real people. The rest of the people were brought to life by Francis Penn in his encyclopedic fabrication of the town and its inhabitants. This is also why the townsfolk have been obsessing over the right people dying on the right day, because it's written down in Francis' chronicle. And up until two years ago, everything was ticking along fine. But then things started to drift away from Francis' grand design. There's a neat bit about the state of Francis's creations after the author's early death at 44. Would everyone cease to exist? Apparently not. It seems that everyone in Galen, those in Francis's book, know exactly when they'll die, and they're fine with that. There's no uncertainty about the afterlife for them either. They just stop. As Thomas muses on page 195, theirs is the purest form of Calvinism, except they didn't have to worry about what happened to them on the other side after death. So, what's Thomas's role in all this? We know that there have been other biographers in the past who did not pass the towns, or more correctly, Anna France's muster. But Thomas is better because of his obsession. France's idea, his insurance policy, is that the biographer is good enough that they'll be able to bring everyone else back by telling France's story. And that could be a happy ending, except for Thomas's romantic entanglements. Saxony learns about Anna... At the same time, Anna insists that Saxony must leave as she's no longer part of the biography team with Thomas. Saxony leaves and Thomas' biography gets derailed, although he's unaware that Sax is the missing ingredient. The townsfolk alternate between beseeching and threatening Thomas over completing the biography as events once again deviate from the plan. It's only when Saxony comes back after having gotten sick while she's away. Um, that things get better. And this sickening whilst whilst you're away from Galen is something that all the artificial characters will suffer. They will wither and die if they, if, they fa- if they stay away from the town too long. With Saxony back, though, things return to plan. At the very climax of the story, Thomas writes about France's arrival in Galen uh, on the 5.30 train and effectively conjures him into existence. It seems that Thomas's allegorical power rivals France in his ability to conjure the dead. Now, for whatever reason, though, Galen doesn't intend to reward its biographer, and Thomas and Saxony need to be silenced, because Thomas's powerful magic can't be shared with the world. The epilogue is one of the most satisfying I've read, actually. If the ending had happened at the end of Part 3, and the conclusion of Thomas and Saxony's time in Galen, it would have been pretty bleak and fairly typical of horror. Instead, we get a, a denouement, uh, when Thomas, waiting for the Galenites to come for him somewhere in Europe, we also find out that Thomas' ability to raise the dead has persisted as he now writes his father's biography. Let's talk about themes, then. and I'm Obviously, I'm picking this up after a long hiatus, but I always intended to discuss this book in comparison with The Magicians. And in that book, the hidden world of The Magicians has further realms that can be accessed, one of which is Fillory. The author of Fillory, and further, Christopher Plover, based his pseudo-Narnian novels on the exploits of the the Chadwins, who discovered a way to access the realm. Now, compare this to Marshall Francis' creations, which do not exist independently from the author. Instead, we have a single godlike originator who has inserted the fiction into a real place on Earth. So the first question you need to consider when implanting this secondary world as extant fiction in your primary world is, which came first? did the world come first or the author that has an implication for the secondary world's independence from the author and clearly marshal francis galen exists according to his design even after his death the second question is whether your fictional world is separate from or embedded in the primary world fillery is the former and galen is the latter and the last question we have is who has the power to go there is this a permission to travel is it a permission to see who or what are the barriers to the secondary world? Thinking on these, I feel a lot more affection for Galen's Lynchian sensibilities, not least because the protagonists don't have any overt power other than their belief, compared with Quentin and others' powers that they source from the closeted community in the primary world of the magicians. Now, in previous episodes, we've talked about both Anthony Hope's Prisoner of Zender and Nabokov's Pale Fire, and from there I conceived the RPG Pale Assassins, this is back in April 2017, and I named the Land of Laughs as an influence on uh, my blog post then. It's uh, at departmentv.net, and I will put that in the show notes. So when I talk about permission, I'm thinking about the fact that the people in Galen physically can't survive outside the town. And Pale Assassins has the concept of a Ruritanian colony, the idea that exiles from a fictional country can make their way into the real world and sustain their community by critical mass but really where this fictional world exists in plain sight and is there for everyone to see in theory the permission is being let in on the secret this is pretty much what happens to thomas he's basically initiated in the land of laughs into this secondary world this initiation isn't for everyone, obviously. Thomas and Saxony have the same kind of affinity for France that Quentin has for Fillory. This makes me think of Marshall France's books as intelligent spores of Galen drifting through the world until they lodge in a fertile brain like Thomas's. Somehow Saxony and Thomas were drawn together and together made their way to Galen. But even before that, their collective fandom was approaching criticality. And this leads to another interesting thought. Could Galen be weaponized? At the end of the book, the creator supposedly returns. Will Galen be content to remain separate and isolated, or will it seek to propagate, to spawn? This is an altogether more dangerous version of the Rotanian colony, and something I hope to discuss in the future with reference to the King in Yellow. But before that, let's not overlook the human component of the Land of Laughs. Thomas is unlucky in love. And as soon as he settled down with Saxony, their excursion to Galen threatens that by the introduction of Anna. This is a love triangle with each party placing emotional demands on the others and creating tension. And after the initial mystery in the first part of the book, the fantasy gives way to human needs. I can imagine drawing a drama system network of um, desires and emotional concessions between the three characters, and I'm reminded also of uh, Jan Mark's Eclipse of the Century, which we've also covered ages ago, where the protagonist is initially stepping into an alien world, but by the third act, he all the strangeness is actually commonplace, and it gives way to the more human dramas. My role-playing aspirations go back to Pale Assassins from Ruritania, uh, and the more I think about the Land of Laughs and the Lynchian set up with a close community with lots of interesting characters and a, a network of desires and wishes and responsibilities, um, I'm thinking of the drama system network of relationships. Uh, that is actually something I think the drama system excels at. I'm not too hot on everything about it, but that is definitely a model I will always go for um, just for setting up small communities like this. The uh, Obviously the plot we have here for Pale Assassins and Ruritania, we would have things like agents sent from the homeland to tie up loose ends, um, hounding the Ruritanian colonies and uh, sleepy isolated towns with citizens as fixtures, and a sort of lynching undercurrent of mysticism. I'm going to come back to Pale Assassins in the future. For now, I think that's it for this episode. If you like what you've heard, um, how about giving a review on iTunes? And if you want to get in touch, we're at VictorPlasm on Twitter, or you can leave a comment on the blog at www.victoplasm.net. Music for this podcast is by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at www.chriszabriskie.com.